Now, we'll go ahead and get into the Word this morning. I've been, if you've been following along with us, we've been uh, in, a, in a sermon series that's really got to do with spiritual warfare. Of course, we've talked about, we've talked about how, how politics is involved in spiritual warfare. We've talked about how social media is involved in spiritual warfare. And then all of the voices that are at work in our world and ultimately uh, how, how Satan is trying to infect us with fear and hopelessness. And then Forrest preached a message last week about the Lord being our hope during these times and, and just trusting and knowing that He's in control. Man, it helps us quite a bit because has it not been the weirdest year of all time? Amen. Every time I think about it, I, I, it's funny. The whole time I've been thinking about just how strange 2020 is, that song comes into my mind by Frank Sinatra. It was a very good year. Y'all know that song? It, it keeps coming to my mind over and over again. I think that's what the devil's singing right now. But, uh, but listen, I've, I've embraced it. We've had, the, we've had some ups and downs. We've had to close the church three times, bless God. You know what I'm talking about? It's not been fun. But at the same time, we continue to move on. People are blessed. We've got, we've got God doing some wonderful things in our lives. And we just need to continue to hold one another up. But I got a, a message that I want to preach about this morning, and the title of it is Where the War Was Won. Now this, I'm going to kind of zoom out and get a much broader perspective, and we're going to talk about where the war was won this morning. But uh, before we begin, well, let's, let, let's, just, let's just pray together right quick. Father, we, uh, we're so grateful for the folks that are here, for the folks that are listening online. And God, every time we meet together, regardless if we are... Uh, uh, in the building or outside of the building, Lord, you said where two or three are gathered together, you are there in their midst, Lord. And we believe that you're here right now with us, God, and you're in, with people in their living rooms as they're listening. And God, we believe that your word has the power to transform our lives. And so we pray that your word would go forth with anointing this morning, God. You'd teach us something new. You'd give us a greater understanding. And Father, you would release your power and your spirit this morning, uh, God, to encourage us, to strengthen us, and to change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm talking about where the war was won. And if you know anything about, and Jeremy mentioned it just a minute ago, it is at the cross of Jesus Christ that the war was won. And I want to go back to that because in, in the book of Hebrews, it actually says in chapter 10, verse 14, that by one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. On the cross, Jesus performed a perfect work. And it's so important that when we're doing battle and we are in spiritual warfare on a daily basis that we revisit the cross, we revisit the work of Jesus, and we figure out how to apply it to our lives because He has provided every need that you and I will ever, ever have on this earth and even throughout eternity, whether it be physical, whether it be spiritual, mental, and emotional, whether it be financial, even Jesus on the cross has purchased everything that we will ever need and He has done it once and for all and it's perfect and complete. But here's the issue with the cross that we as Christian people need to understand is that what Jesus did 2,000 and some odd years ago on the cross is complete, it's perfected, it was finished, it was done. Nothing needs to be added to it and nothing can ever be taken away from it. But the issue is that our appreciation of the cross and our appropriation of it is progressive, right? And we have to get involved in appropriating what Jesus did on the cross for us in our lives. We have to believe in it. We have to look to it. And I'm telling you, sometimes we just, when we come in here into worship, you know, we want the music to be good and all of those things. And thank God that it is amazing. It helps us to worship. But I'm telling you, when somebody really gets filled with the reality of the cross in their heart and in their lives, some
something happens and you don't even need any music. It just begins to cause worship to overflow in your heart and mind because you get fixed on what Jesus has done for you. And that's what I want to do this morning because it is central to our Christian faith, but we don't always fully understand it. But see, the message of the cross, a lot of times when we preach even, we want something very practical to go into our lives, don't we? Like, give me something to do. Give me a takeaway point, Clay. Give me something practical that I can use this week. And I thank God for that. But you, do you know that Scripture says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. Notice it says being saved, not those that were saved or have been saved. But see, the cross is actively saving us. Yes, we were saved from, from the penalty of sin when whenever we first believed in Jesus. And that's why we say that we are saved. But the message of the cross is not, has not just saved us. It is continuing to save us. But see, it is the power of God for those who are being saved. For those who are being saved, the message of the cross. That means when you literally just proclaim the message of the cross, it is the, the power of God is released in the message. And you say, well, I don't have a takeaway point. Well, if you put, just put your faith in the power of, cross, of, the, of the cross of Jesus Christ, you don't even need a takeaway point because it is the power of God in itself. Now you say, well, what's that got to do with spiritual warfare? What's the, it's got everything to do with spiritual warfare because at the cross is the place where the victory was won, where the war was won, where Jesus won the war against sin, against death, against hell and the grave, and against all principalities and the powers of darkness. And this is why the Apostle Paul actually says in Ephesians 6, right? he says our, our warfare, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting with one another. Our, our warfare is not between uh, left and right, Democrats, Republicans. We're not fighting with, with one another, even though the enemy deceives us into believing that our warfare is with one another. But our warfare is actually actually with unseen demonic spirits and powers and principalities that are at work in the unseen realm. But here's why Paul told you to put armor on. Because he realized that we were not any longer fighting for victory. I need you to understand as a Christian person that, that the victory has already been won and the Bible teaches us all the instructions of overcoming the powers of darkness in Scripture are actually instructions to step into the victory of Christ that has already been won. And that's why four times in Ephesians 6, Paul says, you need to stand firm in that victory. Amen. Because the devil is going to try to get you knocked off of that victory. He's going to try to get you to believe that it's not a finished work. He's going to try to get you to use your own authority against you and get you to believe, get your eyes off the cross, get your eyes off the victory, move into doubt and unbelief and fear, and then all of a sudden he can bring about a different reality in your world because you are not appropriating the victory of Jesus Christ to your life. Look, yesterday we was praying, and I actually had a different message pre prepared, and, and, and yesterday morning we were praying in the Saturday morning prayer meeting, and and Andrea said, you know what, I, I need a list of all the things that Jesus paid for me on the cross. And I need to write that down because I need to make sure that I'm walking and living in everything that Jesus purchased for me. Somebody say amen to that. Well, I said, well, praise God. You know what, I was kind of looking for a different wind of what I could preach tomorrow. And I said, I, I want to go that route. I want to know what Jesus purchased for me on the cross. And I want to make sure that I'm living and walking in it, especially in tumultuous times and turmoil in our world where we're confused, where fear's running rampant, where sometimes we get sick, where sometimes we get depressed, where sometimes we're anxious, and we're dealing with all kinds of different things. And it's easy when you're battling those things to feel like Jesus won nothing. Amen. Y'all ever just feel like, man, I feel like we're losing every battle that we face. I feel like we're not winning anything. I feel like I'm defeated. But see, I've got to go back to the cross to realize that this thing has already been won. And here's what I love about Jesus. 
In, in John 3, 14, it's a very unique verse. But notice what he says, because this is two verses. It's in the context of John 3, 16, which is one of the most famous verses in all the land. But he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I want you to picture Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus is giving us an interpretive key. And what he's saying is that I must be lifted up on the cross the same way that Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness. And he's giving his listeners an interpretive key to say, you can go back to the Old Testament and you can understand what Moses did in the wilderness in that moment. And it will be a picture of what happened on the cross and what I did on the cross. So I'm, I'm all ears whenever Jesus says something like that. So if you turn to Numbers, Numbers 21, let's, let's look at this story together. And I'm going to go through it verse by verse, uh, 21, 4 through, 4 through 9. We'll just take it one piece at a time. But notice, the children of Israel, they are journeying out of Egypt. They've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They've crossed over the Red Sea, which is a picture of our baptism. And now they have entered into the wilderness. The book of Acts says that whenever you see the children of Israel moving out of Egypt and moving into the wilderness, it is actually the church in the wilderness, right? All of those things typify the church. It, it typifies us and our spiritual walk. So it says in verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. See, they're very discouraged because they have literally been traveling for 40 years on a journey that was supposed to take 11 days. Now, everybody knows if I told y'all, boys, we're going to go somewhere and we're going to get there in 11 days. And 30 years later, 40 years later, we still ain't made it. Somebody's going to be upset, ain't they? Like somebody's going to be like, Clay, don't you remember about 40 years ago, bro? You said 11 days, man. You told me 11 days. And so they're upset. They're very discouraged. But part of the reason that they're very discouraged and the reason it took 40 years is because they could never find and, and, and understand and embrace the revelation that God was giving them, that He was their provider. And over and over again, He shows them honestly the sacrifice of Christ even before Christ came in His sacrifice. He's, he says, look, I've provided everything that you have need of. Food, water, there's an abundance everywhere that you go, but you still cannot believe me. You're not looking to me. You're complaining. You're wondering if I'm still here because some Things, sometimes things look bad around you and you begin to doubt my faithfulness. And that's why they traveled for 40 years, but they got very discouraged because they were there so long. But let me tell you something, there was no reason for them to be discouraged because like I said, whenever they were thirsty, God provided water out of a rock. Whenever they were hungry, God caused manna to rain down from heaven. God was always supplying their needs no matter what situation they got into, but still they complained. They were ungrateful. They struggled. They always looked at the circumstances rather than looking at God. And see, the reason they were discouraged, and a lot of times the, reason, the same reasons that we get discouraged are because somewhere in our hearts we actually believe a lie. Somewhere in our hearts we actually are in unbelief concerning God. We actually believe a lie. And see, all of these voices, the principalities and the powers, are using the circumstances of our world, the news media and everything, to bring chaos and confusion into our hearts and into our minds, to get our eyes focused on the circumstances and off of the victory of Jesus Christ. 
And that's the war that we battle right now. That's the war that we're facing. There is a pull for you to begin to look at all the circumstances and say, this is so bad, God cannot be at work in all this. I promise you that God is still on the throne. God is still at work. He's still got a church that is powerful and filled with the Holy Spirit. And He still has people that He has called to do His work and do His will in the earth right now. And God is saving souls. He's healing bodies. He's raising people up. He's strengthening people. God is still at work. Amen? You can give Him a hand clap if you want to. Amen. Man, it's rough in here right now. You know what I'm talking about? It's, we we got, got a thin hand clap, praise God. Lord, release the COVID and move it on out so we can get some more hand claps in here, praise God. So it says, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. See, when people get discouraged, they start speaking against somebody, don't they? When people get discouraged, when things ain't going right, it's just like, man, when, you know, like, it's almost like Trump himself made the coronavirus. We've got to blame somebody. When something happens, let's just blame, we got to blame somebody. We always get discouraged. We blame our leaders. We blame people that are in power. And they spoke against God and against Moses. And we have brought you up out, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food or water and our soul loathes this worthless Bread. See, their discouragement led them to speak against God and their leadership and their leading. And they said, we loathe this worthless bread. Let me tell you something. That manna, that bread was by no means worthless. One, it was keeping them alive. Amen. And it was not worth And it was there every day. God faithfully rained it down from heaven every day. And he had it for them. He had it provided. But see, the picture of the manna, actually, Jesus said he was the bread of life. The bread represents the daily word of God, the daily provision of the word of God. And sometimes what happens is Christians see their circumstances and they start to despise the word of God. They say, you know what? I've heard that preached. I've, I've opened my Bible. I've read that scripture. But things are hard out here on the outside. And I don't want to hear that anymore because it's not changing anything in my life the way that I want it to be changed when I want it to be changed. And they begin to loathe that worthless bread. In verse 6, it says, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now somebody said, well, man, that sounds awful. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. When you get into the Hebrew language, and you can learn this, because even sometimes in the Old Testament, now you don't see this language in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, sometimes even an unclean or an evil spirit, like for example, when an evil spirit came upon Saul, the Bible says, and an evil spirit from the Lord. See, the Hebrews had no other context than to understand that no matter what happened, it happened from God. Somebody amen me, right? No matter what happened. So they had something, they had a causative tense and a permissive tense. That means that God either caused a thing or he permitted a thing, one or the other. So when it says God sent fiery serpents among the people, it is not God literally causing serpents to go in there and bite the people. It's the simple fact that when you rebel against God and you disagree with God and you break agreement with God and you come into agreement with the enemy and you rebel against God, God says, okay, if you don't want what I have for you, I will lift my hand of protection. And that is what the wrath of God is written about in the New Testament is when God hands you over. When you rebel, when you complain, when you don't believe God, God says, all right, if that's how you want to live, if you don't want to trust me, I can lift my hand. And it opens the door. See, God does not want Satan to have access into your life. Somebody amen me. The Lord does not want, this is why he gives instructions over and over again, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand in the armor of God. Keep on the armor of God. Do not give a place to the devil. Over and over again, the instructions of Scripture are that he would not get access into your life, but when we agree with him, we open the door for him. 
When we rebel against the Lord, when we believe a lie, we open the door for Him in our lives. And all of a sudden, He comes in. But see, God is still merciful and God is still good. So we open the door for Him to come in. And notice what you see here. Now, we got a lot of symbols going on because we got the serpent, which is a symbol, right? And then He talks about, later on, we're going to read about this bronze serpent. But symbols are important. Because throughout Scripture, like for example, the oil in the Old Testament represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol. The wind represents the Holy Spirit Himself. The breath, it represents, it represents the Holy Spirit. And you have all of these symbols throughout Scripture which represent these different things. The Lamb would represent uh, Christ in the future and his, and his death on the cross. The water represents the Word of God. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament represented the presence of God. But you have all these symbols. But I need you to understand that the cross actually, especially back then, would have represented. In Jesus' time, the cross represented abandonment by God. The cross, it was a symbol of being cursed. They saw the cross. They saw anybody being hanged on a tree as being a curse. Now today, we'll actually wear a cross around our neck because we know that something happened. The symbols changed. And, and if you were to ask people throughout history, well, what does the cross represent? It, early on, they would have said, well, it represents the curse. It represents being abandoned by God. But then others would come in as Christian people and say, it represents the love of God. It represents the salvation of God. And the truth is, is that the cross is so amazing because everything at the cross is converging at once. You see the wrath of God, you see the justice of God, and at the same time you see the mercy and the love of God because at the cross, God is revealing that He must punish sin. Sin cannot be overlooked. Sin is horrific and it needs to be judged. And at the cross, the judgment and the curse of God is revealed. But at the same time, you see the love and the mercy of God as He steps in on your behalf and in a substitution takes that curse, takes that penalty, takes that punishment. And it's not just God the Father Him Himself punishing his son. The scripture said that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God was not distant from his son while he was on the cross. God the Father was with his son on the cross bearing the weight of his very own punishment. And that's his love for us that is revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ. But see, the serpent, the serpent started in Genesis 3. We got to understand what this serpent's all about. Now, y'all know in the very beginning, the serpent is mentioned five times in the fall of humanity in the beginning. The serpent represents Satan. It represents the fall of humanity. It represents lies and deception and sin and all of the effects of sin, sickness, disease, death, hatred, violence, division. All of those things come through the work of the serpent. So when we're talking about the serpent, we know immediately that it is a symbol that represents all of these things that have been unleashed in the world. And as soon as that fall took place and all of this sickness, this death, this hatred, this disease, this sin was unleashed in the world. See, Satan gained authority in the world. He took the authority of humanity. But see, God prophesied to Satan. He said, I'll put enmity between you and, and the woman and her seed and your seed. And I love what he says. He says, he shall bruise, he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. In other words, he's prophesying. Can you imagine? I want you to imagine this. God is telling the serpent, the devil, early on. And he's giving him just a hint, but he's veiling it. He's saying there's going to be a point, Satan, when you're actually going to bruise his heel. You're going to hurt him. It's going to seem like you actually are going to hurt the seed of the woman. But ultimately in doing so, when you strike him and you bruise his heel, in doing so, he will crush your head. Can you imagine how aggravating that must have been for Satan? He's like, what am I going to do? 
How, how can I actually figure this out to where I can hurt him and maybe even kill him, but not but keep from getting my own head crushed? Because God is prophesying that Satan, yeah, I'm gonna let you get a little taste. You're gonna come in, you're gonna strike, you're gonna bruise his heel, but in doing so, you're gonna cut your very power off. You will crush your own head when you do this. That's an amazing thing to consider because I want you to understand this. God is so sovereign and God is so wise that even when Satan attacks you in your life, God has already foreordained a way out of it, friends. He has already put things in place that if Satan is attacking you in this moment, the same way that he did Jesus when he wanted Jesus to die on the cross, God foresaw it and said, you know what, I can use that to ultimately defeat Satan and crush his head. So God sets you up even when you fall, even when you struggle. God knows about it, God sees it, and you're a child of God. And the same way that his first, first son, the son of God, came, whenever he came, he had it set up that ultimately, even when Satan would attack, he would end up crushing his head. And the same thing goes with us. Man, I don't care if it's coronavirus, I don't care if it's sickness or disease, ultimately, whatever Satan brings against us, we are set up to crush his head if we will look to the cross and stay firmly fitted in what God has planned for us in this life. But see, the serpent comes in. And there's these snake bites that begin to be released in this scripture. And, and, and we talk about sin and we talk about all of these things. So the question is this, why does Jesus typify himself as a serpent? Why does he say the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent is the same way that I'm going to be lifted up? In other words, he's saying I'm like that serpent. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you're the Son of God. You're holy. You're pure. There's no way you could ever become like a serpent. How, why would you typify yourself as a serpent? Why would you even put that parallel in there and say that the same way something happens to a serpent, it's going to happen to you? That can't be right. And here's what it says in verse 7 and 8. It says, Therefore the people came to Moses because they had been bitten by the serpent and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Now notice what they say. They say, Lord, take the serpents away. Right? And anytime something happens, I mean, even when we get in prayer meeting, I've heard people pray, Lord, take the coronavirus away. Lord, take this away. Lord, take that away. And I'm not saying that's a bad prayer, but I'm saying that when they asked for God to take something away, God did not take away the serpents, did he? Now, what happened was the serpents still remain because God's saying, look, even if I take away the serpents, guess what? You still got poison running through your blood. Even if I were to take away the serpent, you are still infected. He's saying you need to quit worrying about the serpent and the circumstances that are going on in your world and all around you and you need to look to the solution. Christians do not focus on the problem. They focus on the solution. And he says, you need to set up a pole and put a bronze serpent on it. And I'm thinking, why would we do this, Lord? This makes no sense. It's going to make sense in just a minute. He says, put the bronze serpent up on a pole. And he says, whoever will look at this. He said, don't worry about the serpents. You can be getting bit all day long. But if you'll look at that pole and you'll see that bronze serpent, he says, you shall live. Whoever looks upon it shall live. See, God's answer is not to take away the problem, but to look at the solution. In verse 9, Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, man, I need to find out what, what it means to look at that bronze serpent because I'm wanting to find life. 
I want to make sure that if I've been bitten, if I've been infected, that I want to find life. I want to know what it means to look at this bronze serpent. Now, look, there's a couple of words for look in the Hebrew. One is ra, and it just means to look. I look, I look over and check somebody out. Right here, it's a specific word. It's nabot, and it means to scan intently. It means to meditate. It means to have an expectant faith. It's the kind of look that, for example, if, I, if I'm drowning in the, in, 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 the, in the lake, I'm looking at a lifeguard like this. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, I need you to throw me something. I'm expecting them to bring something my way. That's the kind of look that it is. He's saying you need to not just sort of glance at this thing, but you need to have an expectation that what you see whenever it's put up is going to be the solution for your problem. He's saying you got to get an intent look at what's going on here. And see, here's, here's the issue. Why bronze? Why a bronze serpent? Again, we talk about symbolism. Throughout Scripture, bronze represents judgment. It was the bronze laver that they would come and they would offer the sacrifices on. It was always on bronze that they'd lay the sacrifice and offer the sacrifice so that the judgment of God would be poured out on that sacrifice in my place and your place. Bronze represents judgment. And so when he puts up that bronze serpent, basically what he's saying is all the judgment that the serpent deserved, all the judgment for sin, for sickness, for death, for disease... He said it was placed upon that cross. In other words, when Jesus was placed upon that cross, He became the bronze serpent. Everything the serpent represented, He became that. On the cross, our sickness, our disease, our death, our hatred, our violence, our lust, our anger, everything that came through sin and came through the serpent, Jesus became that on the cross so that Satan would no longer have the right to hold, us against us, hold it against us any longer. At the cross, see, He bore all of those things in a moment of time. He became what we deserved in order to purchase us and redeem us from it. And there is power that is released in that. See, on the cross, Jesus provided for us a holistic salvation. And this is why whenever He hung on the cross, what did He say? He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. I told y'all folks, if you was going to get a tattoo, Tetelestai would be a good idea, right? Like, put it on the arm. It means it is finished, it's paid in full. It is perfectly perfect it is completely complete. And it is, it, it's, it's kind of interesting if you, if you actually study the language, but it's perfect passive indicative. What that means is, now here's what's interesting. Jesus says to Telestai while he's hanging on the cross, and he says it if, in the tense that means it's already been done. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and my sins before the foundation of the world, folks. But it came into being whenever he hung there on that cross and it was established. And he said, it is finished. In other words, it is something that has been done, but it has ongoing effects. It's something that has been done, but it has ongoing effects. But not only has it been done, but it now has ongoing effects. See, there, there's things that Jesus paid for that you and I aren't experiencing yet. There's things that Jesus paid for. There are people that need to be saved that Jesus paid for their salvation. And they're not saved yet. It has been done, but there are ongoing effects. And see, it's passive because we have a responsibility of receiving it by faith. 
We have a responsibility of employing that victory against the powers of the darkness. So when Satan comes against me, what's he, what, he's, what he's trying to convince me is that he does have power over me. That he can destroy my life with fear, with anxiety, with sickness, with disease, with hate, with violence. And what I've got to remind the devil every day is to say, no, you, got, you don't understand, devil. Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. You can't enslave me anymore. He even paid for my sickness and my disease, and I'm standing in healing until I experience that healing. I'm going to stand in the victory of the cross of Christ and I'm going to stand right there in the armor of God and no matter what you tell me, no matter what you try to convince me of otherwise, whatever sway you try to get me under, nothing will move me from the victory that Jesus won for me on the cross. I'm going to stand right there fixed and firm in that. Now see, you know that the scripture says it's very interesting. It says, had the principalities and powers known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Isn't that amazing? If Satan would have known what was going to happen on the cross, he never would have even crucified Jesus. But see, demons are a little bit dumb. They're wise, but they're also a little bit dumb because they're ignorant concerning the plans of God. God's all-knowing, demons are not. God can read your mind, demons cannot. The powers and principalities don't have omniscience, nor, nor do they have omnipotence. They, they're not like God, and God knew what was going on. He knew the plan, but He hid the plan from them. And so when Jesus comes, they actually don't know what He's doing. They know who He is. They say, we know you're the Holy One of God. They said, have you come to torment us before the time? They know a time is coming when they're going to be judged, when their power is going to be quenched, when there's going to be no more violence or hatred or sickness or disease or death, and they're going to be tormented forever, day and night, separated from the presence of God because of the choices that they have made. They said, Jesus, we know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time? They don't realize what's going on. See, the only thing that they know is that he's a human being. And the only thing that they know is, you know what, up to this point, we've had power over human beings. We've been able to infect them with sin. We've been able to bite them and infect them with disease and sickness. And you know what? We've been able to bring death upon these people. And whenever they die apart from God, we've got them enslaved. We've got them held on. And so they think, you know what, maybe we'll just treat him just like any other man. Let's try to kill him. That's what I'd do if I was a devil, right? Let's try to kill this dude. He is destroying our kingdom. We need to kill this man. But here's the problem. They helped orchestrate the crucifixion. They moved men. And guess what? In God's preordained plan, he used the devil. He took his hand back. He said, go ahead, devil. Take Judas. Take whoever else you need. Plan this thing because ultimately even your plans fit into my plans. Even the devil's plans fit into God's plans. And that's an amazing thing. But he lifts it up. He gives the devil free way. The devil orchestrates the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, thinking we'll finally bring an end to this thing. And see, they bring Him to the cross, and they bring Him up there. But here's what you've got to understand. Jesus was not like you and I. Jesus was sinless. And because Jesus had never sinned, guess what? Satan had no authority over Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus said, the prince of this world has come and he has no place in me. He has no right, no access to my life because I've never sinned and he does not have right to bring death upon him. So... Jesus comes representing all of humanity. He's the second Adam. He's the last Adam. And when, and when he is crucified on that cross, when Satan kills him without having authority to do so, it reverses everything. Jesus becomes our substitute. And he bears the punishment that you and I deserved. And when he accused Jesus worthy of death, he took away every right that Satan would now have to accuse you worthy of death. Somebody amen me. 
He took away all of the power. Jesus goes into the cross. He enters into death. He becomes that sin. And the crucifixion canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. He paid everything you and I owed and more. And He blew up the demonic system of enslavement from the inside out. And if you and I will only believe it, we can live free from the demonic enslavement of this world. If we can only believe it, if we can only access it and understand and look to the cross. And so if I'm, lo- if I'm looking to the cross, see, I've got to understand, and I'm going to give you eight quick points that I'm going to go through, and we're going to finish this message. But I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you eight quick points because on the cross, there was a divine exchange that took place. There was a divine... Jesus demonstrates... God demonstrates His love for us that Jesus became our substitution on the cross. What you and I deserved... Jesus took and became so that we could receive by faith what only He deserved. Man, that's good news, isn't it? That's the kind of stuff that when I hear it, like I said, I don't need music to worship. I just need to go ahead and give God praise because I know, man, He has done something for me that I'll never be able to fully stand. But let's talk about what happened, a divinely ordained exchange. I'm going to give you some points, some teaching. You can write them down right here because these are the things that you need to know Jesus paid for you to have and you need to be walking in them. Amen? First, number one, Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. Surely He has borne our griefs. Now, in the Hebrew, that word griefs is literally, if you look it up in the Hebrew, pains. If you got pains, He bore them. And He carried our sorrows. In the Hebrew, that word is literally sicknesses. He carried your sicknesses. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And notice what it says. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. What that means is, see, right now in our world, especially in the church, sin is downplayed. It's underplayed. It's as if sin's not really that big of a deal. Really, all you need to do is believe in Jesus. You don't even have to repent of sin. You don't even have to think about sin. Jesus died because He loved you. No, the cross is so horrific because sin was so horrific. When Jesus came to die on the cross, He died to save us from our sins. He didn't just die simply because He loved you. He died because you and I had a problem. He died because you and I had been infected with sin and it separated us from God and we were doomed for eternal death and separation from God. And Jesus had to make a payment because sin, God cannot just wink at sin and say, you know what, it's no big deal. There's no way He could have done that. If He would have, He would not have had to die on the cross. If God could have just said, you know what, let's let it go, no big deal, it's just sin. Now he knew it was a big deal. And he knew that none of us could have ever looked at his character as just and holy and pure if sin was not punished. But see, when Jesus comes, he's perfect, undeserving. And yet he goes to that cross, he's marred beyond recognition. All of the iniquity of the world is laid upon us in that moment. All of our guilt, our rebellion, our perversity, and all the punishment and consequences for guilt was laid on him in that moment. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Because Jesus was punished, now God will never punish you again for your sins when you believe in him. Now, we have a heavenly father that will correct us. He will correct us, but he will not punish you for your sins. You know why? Because Jesus has already been punished for you. 
And he can't punish again what he's already punished or he'd be unjust. Now our Father loves us. He will bring us correction. But never again will we have to deal with any punishment. He's taken our sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered again. You have forgiveness because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And you don't have to worry about your past anymore. The things that you've done or God holding that against you. Or God saying I'm not going to bless you because of what you've done. No, you've been forgiven and you've been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. And that's one of the benefits of the cross. And we've got to stand in it. Number two, Jesus was one wounded that we might be healed. Now we just read right there in Isaiah that by his stripes we were healed. But in Matthew 8, 8 verse 16 and 17, I love these verses because it quotes the same scripture in Isaiah that we just read. But it says, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And here's something else that's interesting. When you look at sickness and disease in the New Testament, Jesus always attributed it to Satan. Jesus never said that sickness and disease were from God. He always attributed it to the works of the devil. And even when a woman was bent over with an infirmity for 18 years, he told the religious leaders who didn't want him to heal on the Sabbath day, he said, ought not this woman who's been bound by Satan these 18 years be loosed? Now you say, well, does that mean a demon was in her? Or does that mean sickness? It doesn't matter one way or the other. God is saying that ultimately sickness, whether it's natural, whether it can be cured with medicine, whatever it may be, ultimately all sickness is derived from the fact that sin entered the world when Satan deceived you humanity. That's its source. Satan is the source of all evil. He's the source of all sickness and disease. He's the one that's at work. God attributed it to him and he says, see, and he healed all who were sick, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. See, Matthew actually retranslates that a little bit. He changes the verbiage there. He says, he took our infirmities. He bore he bore our sicknesses in that verse. Now, Jesus took the stripes on His back for our healing. By His stripes, you were healed. Each time He was beaten on His back when He was being whipped, it was because you and I suffer from sickness and disease and He was saying, I want to make a payment for that. And see, in the atonement, we actually believe that in the atonement, Jesus didn't just only pay for, for, for you to be saved from sin, but He paid for your healing. Now, now you could say, you could say, well, Clay, I don't understand because not everybody that we pray for gets healed. I said, I don't know either. I don't understand why everybody doesn't get healed. All I know is that Jesus did pay for it. And what I can promise you this is that if you don't get healed in this life, you will be healed in the next life. It has been paid for one way or the other, whether you receive it here, whether you receive it there. Now, I believe as Christians, we're commanded to believe God for healing in the here and now. We're to pray for the sick. We're to believe God for healing. If it doesn't happen, we say, you know what, God, we trust you. And we know that ultimately they're going to go on. If they're saved, they're going to be healed in the end. So healing's coming here and now, or it's coming there and later, but one way or the other, we're going to believe for healing because Jesus paid for it. Now, Jesus demonstrated that it was paid for in the atonement because he had a guy come up that was lame one time and he said, hey, rise, take up your bed and walk. They get all mad because it's the Sabbath day. Once again, religious leaders don't like healing that very much. You know what I'm saying? But Jesus looks at him and he says to him, what's easier to say? Rise, take up your bed and walk or your sins are forgiven you. In other words, he's saying you need to put healing on the same level as the forgiveness of sins because both were paid for effectively in the atonement. And you say, but, but it, it's... Now, I, I, I agree with you. It's easier to believe for forgiveness of sins, isn't it? It is because it's unseen. We don't even... You can't see it. Nobody can prove it. But physical healing, man, that's a materialistic, natural thing. It's harder to believe for that type of a thing. But Jesus is teaching that those two things are both paid for in the atonement. 
And see, number three, it says Jesus was made sin that we might be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now this is a beautiful thing because on the cross, see, Jesus was not a liar, but on the cross He became the lie. Jesus was not an adulterer, but on the cross He became sexual immorality. Jesus was none of the sins that you and I hate, none of the sins that you and I commit. He didn't commit any of the acts, but He took all of the acts upon Himself. And on the cross, He became that living symbol of sin. Every nasty, treacherous, dirty thing you and I have ever done on that cross, Jesus was so marred and ugly because He was bearing the full weight of your sin and of my sin. Now, here's, you say, well, again, we downplay sin in America. We downplay sin in the American church. Let me tell you something. Jesus was the Son of God. He was the most powerful being that ever walked the face of this planet. And the most powerful being sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because sin is powerful, folks. Sin is weighty. Sin hurts. Sin affects us. You know the reason our world is in so much turmoil right now and we're dealing with political chaos and all of this sickness and crazy stuff going on? You can tell you the answer? It's sin. This is the horrors of sin we see manifested in our life on a daily basis. All of these things. And in the cross, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, you can take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He's literally saying this hurts a little bit. I don't know if I can bear the weight of this. He's sweating great drops of blood, but you know what? He prays through and on the third time he stands up and he's resolved in his spirit that he's going to go to the cross for you and I after bearing the weight of that full thing. And he goes to the cross and at the cross, sin is so dark. When he becomes sin on that cross, guess what? Do you know that the scripture says the sun ceased to shine any longer? There is history, even written in Rome, that for miles and miles away from Jerusalem, the sky went sackcloth black, son, like Somebody just covered it up. Why? Because the sun hit its face. It couldn't even look at the sin that was going on right there. You imagine years and years, thousands of years of all the sin of humanity being placed on one man in one moment at one time. And the sun turns to black. And when Jesus pays the full penalty, he says to Telestai, it is finished. I've paid it in full. It no longer has any power anymore. And as soon as he said it, there was a great earthquake. And the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom as if to say, there is nothing any longer standing between you and I. There ain't sin. There ain't disease. There's nothing. Anything you've done in the past, no matter how nasty and filthy it was, there's nothing standing between us any longer. The veil has been torn. The only thing that stands between us is love now. That's the only thing. And so Jesus on the cross did not deserve your sin, but He became it so that what? Now you can say boldly, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When God looks at me, I know I may have thought a bad thought earlier this morning before I came to church, but that doesn't change the fact that when I worship, God looks at me and I'm clothed in righteousness, and it's as if I'm as pure as Jesus Christ Himself standing in the presence of God. Righteousness doesn't come because I earned it. It came because Jesus paid for me to have it. And He clothed me with it. Number four, Jesus tasted death for us that we might share His life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. See, Jesus tasted death for everyone. I love verse 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same. In other words, He's saying, Jesus could not have redeemed you unless He became what you were. 
That's the reason he became flesh and blood. That's the reason he became a man because he had to get back the authority that we lost as human beings. And it says, He likewise shared in the same that through death, notice this, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I know that it's a popular southeastern Kentucky Bible Belt belief that God has the power of death, but the Scripture out there told us that he who had the power of death was the devil. Death was never the original intention of God's design. God designed human beings to live eternally and forever. Death is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death, and the master of death was a dude named the devil. And Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to go back and get authority from that dude, and I'm going to restore it back to human." Humanity. And the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to enter into death. I'm going to become a man that doesn't deserve death and I'm going to enter into it and blow it up from the inside because it can't hold me. It's got no legal right to hold me. It says He tasted death for everyone. And what does He do in that? He says He delivers those who were all their lifetime subject to bondage because of the fear of death. How many people you know in our world right now that are struggling bad with the fear of death? I mean, fear of sickness... Fear of death runs rampant. And i got to be honest with you, folks. I don't, I don't want to die. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like Nobody wants to die, but i got to be honest with you. I'm not scared of it either. I'm kind of looking forward to my homecoming. I don't know about you. Like I'm not, I, I don't want to die. I don't want it to be horrific. I don't want to get sick and be laid up. None of the, I don't want any of those things. I want to live and be blessed and prosper, but I'm not going to live my life in fear of doing the will of God because I'm afraid death might take me. Let me tell you something. If death takes me, it is only a journey for me into the life beyond here, into the eternal life. If I'm no longer breathing tomorrow, I know some people will be sad. Some of you may be happy, but some of them will be upset. But you can go ahead and rejoice rejoice and throw a ceremony because I will be happier than I've ever been in my existence. I will be in the presence of the Lamb. He tasted death for me so that I could share in His eternal life. Man, and you, we got to be rooted in that. That the cross has won a victory that no matter how scary you think death is, He has taken the sting out of death. He's taken the sting out of it. And I know right now, man, the devil, he loves to make it look like, man, death is a spooky, spooky thing. Death is a fearful thing. It's an illusion. When Jesus did what He did to death, when He entered into it and He blew it up from the inside and He was resurrected, He said, "Look, listen folks, I know it looks like death has power, but I got the power back. And I'm going to raise you up again. And if he, said, he said, do you believe this? We've got to believe this. Number five, Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, he's saying when Jesus was placed on the cross in the old covenant, whenever anybody disobeyed, the curse would come upon them. And that curse, it entailed all kinds of horrible things. If you read in Deuteronomy 28, it has to do with a mental and emotional breakdown repeated or chronic sicknesses, miscarriages, infertility, breakdown of marriage and family alienation, financial insufficiency, being accident prone. Anybody in here accident prone, bless God. Suicides and unnatural deaths. These are just a few 
of the categories that you find in the curse in the Old Testament. And it says that on the cross, Jesus became a curse for you, that that would no longer be looming over your head all the time, that you could begin to function and flow in the blessing of God. And that doesn't mean that, every time, that we don't experience bad things and bad things don't happen to us, but it does mean that we have the blessing of God, that we have the presence and the peace of God with us even when we go through hard times. And I don't know about you, but folks, we, we are blessed, aren't we? We're a blessed bunch of people because we know Jesus Christ and no matter what comes, He can get us through these things. Number six, Jesus endured our poverty that we might share His abundance. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody's going to accuse me of being a prosperity preacher this morning, but I'm just reading the Bible. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. I like 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, should have an abundance for every good work. In other words, they're saying on the cross, Jesus became, He was naked, He was destitute. Everything was stripped from Him. All of His rights were stripped from Him. On the cross, Jesus entered into absolute abject poverty. And the Scripture says that by the grace of God, though He was rich, He had all the resources of heaven and He owned everything on the earth. The Bible says He owned the cattle of a thousand hills. There was nothing He did not own, but He became human. He gave up His rights. He left His divine privileges behind. He was stripped naked and beaten on the cross and entered into abject poverty. Why? Because when he took on mine and your poverty, he says it's so that you might become rich. And we're not just talking, we're not talking about the fact that you now get Bentleys and you can do all that stuff. That's not the, we're not talking about the richness of the world. We're talking about the richness of knowing Christ and having everything. And you know what? The Scripture says that He'll supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory. That you can know that if you have a legitimate need on this earth, God will supply your needs. Amen? Jesus has made an exchange for us. Number seven, I got two more. Jesus endured our shame that we might share His glory. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He was made perfect through sufferings because on that cross He bore our shame. He was beaten. He was spat on. He was mocked, he was crucified, he was naked, and everybody that was watching considered him cursed by God. He entered into your shame and my shame of everything that we've done wrong. And the scripture says, Hebrews 12, 2, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy that was set before him is he looked out and he saw all of us in our sin, in our shame. He saw people that were abused that would never be able to get up out of the weight of the shame of what's happened to them, of what they've endured and the things that they've done in the past. I went, I've been at Chad's Hub. I go every week. And this past week, there's a guy that I've been counseling with and things, things that he's done, he's just like, he, he weeps and he says, I just don't see how God could ever forgive me. He's under such an amount of shame. And I'll begin to tell him what Jesus done for him and, and who Christ says that he is and that old things have passed away. And he just begins to cry because he starts to sense that shame lifting. Why? Because Jesus took his shame on the cross. And He wants to bring that man, regardless of what he's done, regardless of where he's been, He wants to bring that Son of God back into glory and put a crown on His head and say, you're no longer what you used to be. You're a child of God. You've got a new name. You've got an eternal kingdom. And He takes our shame when He bears it on the cross. And lastly, number eight, Jesus endured our rejection that we might have His acceptance. 
He endured our rejection. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many of us, man, we've been in that place. Maybe some of you, you've been in that place here recently where you feel like saying, My God, my God, have you forsaken me? Have you left me? I don't sense your presence. I don't know where you're at. But I need you to understand that Jesus entered into that for you so that He could make the promise to you that He would never leave you, that He would never forsake you, that no matter what you did, God would never distance Himself from you any longer, that your sins would no longer separate you from God in that way because the blood of Jesus has brought you near. And in Ephesians 1, 6, it says, to the praise of His glory, of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. You are fully accepted in Christ Jesus. Fully accepted. You have access to God's presence at any time because of what is done. And here's the thing. So many people, by their parents, they feel rejected. Some people have been through things where they've been rejected by this person or that person. But I need you to know that God the Father heals us of our rejection. He receives us and says, You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. And He fully accepts us in that place. And here's what I need you to understand is that religion says, You know what? You need to try harder. You need to do more, and maybe you can enter into the benefits. Maybe you can experience these things. But see, the Scripture says, they, as many as those that looked, they lived. They were made whole. In other words, he's saying, you need to get a picture of what I did on that cross. See, he became that bronze serpent. And as soon as you see your sickness, as soon as you see your shame, as soon as you see your sin, all of those things, your poverty, your brokenness, on that cross, and you realize that it's been judged on that cross. Your sickness even. It's been just, look, even when I get sick, y'all, I get sick just like anybody else. I don't have any supernatural power where I walk in divine health all the time, but I do know this. I do know that when I do get sick, I heal up like the average person. And I also know that even when I do get, I've seen, I've seen God miraculously heal people. Have anybody else seen it? I believe He still heals. And I know that every time I get sick or deal with it, I take communion. I look to the cross. I say, God, I know you're going to bring me through this. I don't know how you're going to bring me through it, but one way or the other, you're going to bring me through it. But I'm, I'm receiving healing today, God, because you judged this sickness on the cross and you punished that sickness. And this sin that I'm struggling with, Lord, I see the cross and I see that you punished this sin on the cross and it no longer has any grip on me. It no longer has a right to stay in my body. And when I look to the cross, life begins to flow. When I worship God for the cross, when I apply the victory of the cross, when I plead the blood of Jesus over these situations in my life and I speak the word of God that the curse is broken, my sin has been forgiven, I have access in His presence. Satan, you have no hold over us any longer. Every legal right that he had is disarmed. The scripture says in Colossians that he has disarmed principalities and powers. Everything that the devil could use to hold against you, Jesus has ripped it back out of his hands. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet for a minute. I want us to pray together for a moment. I know we got a lot of people watching online, but where you're, wherever you're listening, I, I want us to pray through these things because like I said, the cross, what Jesus has done, the work has already been finished, but how we appreciate it and how we appropriate it is ongoing. It's a work that has already been done. It's already been finished, but its effect is still ongoing. And I believe this morning as we pray, we can begin to receive the effect of the cross and just, and just begin to declare. Can you close your eyes? Can you lift your hands to the Lord just for a moment? So Father God, right now we look to the cross. I want you to just imagine in your mind this morning Jesus Christ hanging on that cross for you. And Lord Jesus, we look to the cross this morning and we just declare, and you can speak it out of your mouth right where you're at. 
Father, I thank you that on the cross you took our sins that we could be forgiven. Lord, you bore our punishment and we see that everything that we've done, the punishment for our sins was taken upon that cross and we receive fullness of forgiveness and we proclaim before the powers of darkness and the accusations of Satan that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb, that we are cleansed, that we are forgiven, that we are free, that all of our sins, everything we've done has been cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be brought up or remembered again. No longer will we stand under judgment and punishment because of this forgiveness. And we thank You for it, Lord. We thank You, Jesus, that You took our shame. You were naked and mocked and spat upon and beaten on that cross. And You took our shame so that now, God, we could enter into that glory. And we just pray for a release of Your Holy Spirit. God, You've cleansed us to the degree that now we can be filled with Your Holy Spirit. Once you ask Him, say, Lord, fill me afresh with Your Holy Spirit. And God, people that are struggling with financial difficulties, Lord, Your Word says... That by the grace of God, though you were rich, yet you became poor. That through your poverty, we might become rich. And Lord, we just thank you that you took our poverty on the cross so that we could experience all of the riches of God. All of the riches of Christ. And we believe that you're going to supply all of our need, Lord God, according to your riches and glory, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, that on the cross, you took all manner of sickness and disease, Lord God. And right now, we just command a word of healing. Lord, there are people maybe that are listening online, but we just speak healing into everybody, Lord, from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. We declare over every person, God, that's dealing with COVID, Lord, the word that says they shall live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. Lord God, we receive your healing in our bodies. We receive healing on behalf of those that are sick and afflicted, God, and we pray that you would send forth your word now and bring the healing because you purchased it on Calvary's cross. God, we give you the honor. We give you the glory. We give you the worship that you deserve. And Father, help us this morning to fix our eyes firmly on that cross because your word says, Lord, that as many as looked, lived. And we're believing you for abundant life, God. And even if death comes, we know that on the other side, Lord God, we get to see you in glory. So we worship you this morning. And we thank you, Lord. And we just declare that we love you. We're grateful for the cross. I want you to continue to pray. We're going to worship the Lord together. Let's sing this song to the Lord together right where you are.